No one has more disdain for death than God. No one has more disdain for death than God. There's not a single person here this morning who has not been profoundly impacted by death. Members of our congregation have lost parents and grandparents, siblings. Members have lost uncles, aunts, spouses. Some have lost children. Others have lost dear friends and mentors. We've all been deeply and profoundly impacted by death. And right now, our world is gripped with the fear of death and is even expressing a a disdain for death, a desire to defeat death. Every time death comes into our lives, we are are grieved, and, and rightly so. In fact, if we're, if we're really honest, we, we despise death. We wish it would disappear and go away. And if we're, we're really, really honest, we, as we're grieving the loss of others, what we really want to die is death itself. Instead of our, our friend or our family member, if, if, instead of them dying, if only death itself would die. That's really our heart's true hope. And that's really what we're, we're reaching for as we express and experience a disdain for death. That someone would remove, would remove death's sting. And as I said, no one disdains death more than God. And He has shown us that from the, the very beginning. He created the world and all that was in it. He made man and woman. And He warned them. That the day in which they they sinned and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day in which they rebelled against him, that they would surely die. And he showed his disdain for death. That when that happened, he promised them that he would send a son to come and defeat sin and Satan and death. And that is what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has shown his disdain for death, and he has defeated death. He has removed death's sting. And this morning, as we study Hosea 13, we see God's disdain for sin. We get a glimpse of his promise to put sin to death and to put death to death. Hosea 13, it teaches us what what Romans teaches us, that the wages of sin is death. And that our only hope is for someone to triumph over death. That the Lord Jesus is our hope, who has triumphed over death in and through His death and resurrection. If you wanted to put the message of Hosea 13 into a single sentence, I think it might be this. Sin deserves death. So Jesus receives and defeats death for His people. Sin deserves death. So Jesus receives and defeats death for His people. And it's my earnest prayer that as we unpack and open Hosea 13, that we might say, I love you, Lord, for you have delivered my soul from death. You have kept my feet from stumbling. And because of the Lord Jesus, I will eternally walk in the land of the living. Let's let's consider this good news now together from God's word. If you haven't done so already, turn in your Bibles, open them to Hosea chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 758. 758. As you'll recall, Hosea, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel in the run-up to the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 BC. He's preaching as the kingdom is beginning to to fall down under uh, the, the weight of its own idolatry and sin and eventually under the nation of Assyria. Hosea is is an interesting prophet because he was called to explain and exemplify in his life the the love of God, God's call, his pursuit to his people. Hosea was personally instructed to to marry Gomer. It turned out she would be unfaithful to him. And Hosea was called to go and pursue Gomer, to redeem her, to purchase her back. And he was called to uh, declare in his prophetic ministry, that God wants you back, people of Israel. God wants you back, so, so come back to him. As a prophet, Hosea, he, he prosecutes God's case. He shows Israel how they have sinned against God. And he pleads with them to, to return to the Lord. 
All the while, he tells them that, that, look, sin deserves judgment. And so, just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, so you are going to be cast out of your garden land. You're going to be exiled. But there's, there's hope beyond that. God will redeem his people from death. That's what Hosea 13 teaches us this morning. We're, we're going to look at Hosea 13 uh, in, in something of a unique way. We're going to comb through the passage twice. And in the first pass-through, we'll see Israel's increasing sin. And then the second pass-through, we'll see God's intense judgment against sin. And then, having saved the best for last, we'll come back to verse 14 and see the indestructible life that we can know in Jesus Christ. So if you're, you're taking points this morning, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Israel's increasing sin, or you could just say increasing sin, intense judgment, the intense judgment of God, and indestructible life in Jesus Christ. Take a look. Let, let me just read the whole chapter for us and see if you can spot some of these themes here in Hosea 13. Look for increasing sin and intense judgment and indestructible life. Hosea 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. Instead of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like the smoke from a window. But I am the Lord Yahweh your God, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So, I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts. And there I will devour them like a lion. And as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel. For you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord Yahweh shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious Thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Well, I trust you can see with clarity Israel's great and increasing sin and God's judgment against sin. And we'll come back and look at verse 14, especially the indestructible life we can find in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's begin with our first point. We're going to comb through this chapter and look at Israel's increasing sin. Hosea 13 describes Israel's increasing sin in various ways. Through focusing on idols, through forgetting God, through fighting against God, through filling up God's wrath, and by failing to come when God calls. We see this focus on idolatry, especially there in the first two verses. Look at the first two verses of chapter 13 again. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, 
idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Now, as we pointed out before, Hosea will often use Ephraim, which was a very large tribe, perhaps the largest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. He'll often use Ephraim as, as, a, as a part in place for the whole. But here, notice he is distinguishing Ephraim as a tribe. And part of the reason for that is the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, he came from the tribe of Ephraim. So when Hosea is talking about how Ephraim spoke and that there was trembling, it's largely probably due in part to the fact that Jeroboam was the first king. And so when he spoke and when that tribe spoke, it had a profound effect on the nation as a whole. But there's a problem with Ephraim's exaltation within Israel and Jeroboam's exaltation within Israel. Jeroboam led the northern kingdom of Israel into idolatry. He was afraid that people would travel from the northern kingdom down to the south to worship Yahweh. So instead what he did is he made golden calves. He set up golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And he called the people of the northern kingdom to worship there. But that idolatry, his insecurity, of his fear of people going and traveling away from him, it led to idolatry and led the people not just to make two idols, but to multiply idols. They made more and more idols and they sinned more and more. They made metal images, Hosea tells us. And we're told there, interestingly enough, there that those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. You see, idolatry and human sacrifice became so identified with the northern kingdom that, hey, those who worship calves are also those who offer human sacrifices. Notice that sin, it it leads to death. Sin leads to death. It, It led to people in the northern kingdom putting fellow people made in God's image to death. Now, this was largely part a result of their participating in the worship of the nations around them. They would participate in these fertility cults where sometimes you would offer your children as a sacrifice in the hope that you would have more children or that your flocks would have uh, more animals or that your, your, your crops would produce more. But there is this pursuit of death in the hope of life. But that is not the way that things work in God's world. They had become so identified with human sacrifices and calves. They were just like the nations around them. Rather than being distinct and and different, their idolatry led to death. We've got to be careful not to pile on sin to sin. This idolatry led to further and greater sin among the people of Israel. And and we too should be aware that sometimes we add sin to sin. How often have you seen a, a child in your experience Uh, Do one thing, sin in one way, and do wrong, and then add to that by adding a lie on top of it. And sometimes you have to add another one to cover that lie that's being become clear. We, We often do this in our lives, and we should be careful not to follow in the way of adding sin to sin and increasing sin. And sometimes, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we're awakened to the fact that we're enmeshed and ensnared in sin. We we ask ourselves, how is it that we get to this point? Well, verses 4 to 6, they they show us the trajectory, I think. You see, Israel forgets God. In verse 4, Yahweh reminds His people that He was the God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He reminds them that, that they were to worship and serve Him only. He, he reminds them that He preserved them in the wilderness. He provided abundantly for them in the land of Canaan. But what happened? Do you notice there's a progression in verses 4 to 6? You see, they grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their hearts were lifted up. Or we could put it like this. They grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their hearts were filled with pride. Moses, he warned the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy 8 that they were in danger of their fullness leading to forgetfulness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 to 14, Moses effectively said, don't let your fullness of God's blessings in the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, don't let your fullness of God's blessings lead you to forget that God is the one who gave you those blessings. Remember your God. Remember that without Him, you would be enslaved. Remember that without Him, you'll go back into slavery because that's where sin leads. 
Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins, practices sins, is a slave to sin. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, we, we forget the freedom that the cross of Christ has won for us. When we sin, we forget Christ's exodus from the grave. And we forget our own release from bondage. And we have to deliberately remember or else we will forget. We have to deliberately remember or else we will forget. Consider all of the blessings that you enjoy from the hand of God. Are you deliberately remembering them? We have to deliberately remember. Otherwise, we'll get full and forgetful. See, Israel's heart was lifted up. It was filled with pride. Look at what all I've done and secured for myself. They forgot that God had given them those gifts to them. Rather than believing that God was their helper and that they needed his help, they believed their own hype. Be careful not to believe your own hype. Look at this home that I've purchased for my family. Look at this food that I've provided. Look at the warmth that I've provided. Look at the strength that I had to do this job or that. Look at how wise I was. Friends, all of all of those good gifts, every good and perfect gift comes down from God. It comes from Him. So we have to give Him thanks and praise. Practically speaking, there are two ways I think you can, you can do this. Um, first, consider giving daily thanks until Thanksgiving Day. Consider giving daily thanks until Thanksgiving Day. How might you do that? Maybe before you go to bed each night. Write out a, a one or two sentence prayer, giving thanks to God. Or, or just when you wake up in the morning. E either way, the end of the day, beginning of the day. Give thanks to God each and every day. Lord, it, it might just be something as simple as, Lord, thank you for giving me the strength to get through this day. This was you. This was your strength. And you've been kind. Give thanks daily until Thanksgiving Day. That's suggestion number one. Here's... Suggestion number two. Um, if you find yourself full of turkey on Thanksgiving Day, make sure you are full of thanks on that day too. Now, it's Thanksgiving Day, so what's an appropriate thing to do on that day? Give thanks. Uh, at the law home, when we, when we celebrate Thanksgiving at our home, which we have for the last 10 years, we're going to travel this year, so we'll be doing our same traditions. But one of our traditions is to make everybody go around our table and give thanks to God for three things. And we put these little leaves up on a, a tree, we call it our thankful tree. At whatever table you are at, should the Lord tarry, and should you have the privilege of sitting at a table, be the obnoxious one, or the bold one, or the faithful one, who says, excuse me, I don't... I don't mean to speak out of turn here, but, but it's Thanksgiving Day, and I'd like to give thanks. And go ahead and give thanks to God. And ask other people what they're thankful for. The, the very act of Thanksgiving reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. It might just be a great opportunity to begin talking about the Lord Jesus. Remind yourself and remind others of God through thanks. Give thanks to God so that you don't forget that he's the one who's blessed you immensely. Israel, they lose focus on God and they give themselves to idols. They forget God. And Hosea also tells us, and this is the nature of sin, that sin fights against God. Israel fights against God. That's in verses 9 and 10. Hosea tells us in verse 9 something we often forget. It's against God. It's against our great helper. The one who's met our most desperate needs. Sin is first and foremost against God. So, so when we're sin, we're rebelling against God, going to war against Him. And it's not a war that we can win. Sin's not only an offense against God, but it, it, it often uh, shows itself in a misplaced trust. You see that in verse 10? There's a question there that Hosea raises. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? You see what Israel was placing her trust in? Israel was placing her trust in her king, her ruler, her princes, and sometimes in the rulers of other nations too, when they formed alliances with them. She had abandoned her trust in God, the God of heaven, and placed it in an earthly king. And we must be careful not to do the same. We must place our faith in the God of heaven, not in a king 
of earth. Israel, they, they trusted an idol, they trusted in kings, they trusted other nations, but they should have trusted in God alone. But instead, their, their misplaced trust, it led them to fight against God. And this, in effect, leads up storing up God's wrath. That's another aspect of Israel's increasing sin that God shows us. Verse 12, do you see verse 12 here? There's this image of being bound up. And, and, and the image actually is putting more and more shackles on themselves. That's the idea present there. Israel keeps putting uh, shackles on their, their wrists, as it were. And then there's this image of keeping their sin in store. They're, they're, they're storing up their sin like they're, they're saving treasure. They love their sin, so they, they store it away. And what they don't realize is that they're stockpiling their sin. They're stockpiling those things which enrage God. That store up His wrath. Are you, are you storing your sin away? Are you treasuring it? Is there some secret sin that you're holding on to, allowing it to be safe? There, saved away, could be in danger of storing up God's wrath. Be careful. Israel's increasing sin, it reveals itself in focusing on idols, forgetting God, fighting against God, filling up God's wrath, and failing to come when God calls. If you can believe it, that's what the image of verse 13 is meant to communicate. Failing to come when God calls. Read verse 13 there. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. This is a a frightful image. Um, These various geopolitical crises in the life of the nation of Israel uh, were meant to be like labor contractions that pushed Israel to God and on to faithfulness in Him. But Israel was like a, a baby who was breached and refusing to be born into God's loving arms. Instead, Israel was an unwise son, failing to trust God's timing and come to Him in faithfulness when He called. That's what Hosea has been doing. Hosea has been calling and calling and calling for Israel to come, but like an unwise son, they've been refusing to come to God. Hosea calls all of this, he calls this focusing on idols, forgetting God, fighting against God, failing to come when God calls, filling up on God's heart. He calls all of this rebellion. You see there in verse 16, he says, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. What strikes me about all of this, and I hope it strikes you too, is that God is jealous for us. He's jealous for his people. He he wouldn't be addressing these things through the prophet Hosea if he didn't care about them. He didn't care about his people and want them to return to him. He wants wants us to return to him. He, He comes after us like Hosea went after Gomer with all of his love and all of his heart. He, he comes to us like Hosea went after wayward Israel in his preaching, pleading with us. Our increasing sin does not sit well with him. But here's the rub. God is just and sin cannot go unpunished. The rebellion will be judged. Do you see there verse 13? He says, Hosea says, Samaria shall bear her guilt. All sin deserves to be punished and judged. And that's why we find God's intense judgment traveling right alongside Israel's increasing sin in this chapter. So let's turn and consider our second point, the intense judgment of God. As as Hosea unpacks God's intense judgment, he shows us different aspects of God's intense judgment through different pictures and images. He, He says that God's wrath will burn and blow Israel away. Uh, God's wrath will fall upon Israel like a, a wild beast falls upon its prey. God's wrath will be shown in drought and devastation. These are the images that we see in Hosea 13. Take a look there at verse 3. You see here that God's intense image, His intense judgment against Israel's increasing sin will burn and blow Israel away. Hosea says, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. So, you see, in in view of Israel's focus on idols, 
Yahweh will burn Israel in his wrath like the sun burns off the, the morning mist or the dew. In view of Israel's idolatry, Yahweh will blow Israel away like the wind blows away the chaff that separates from the, the wheat at the threshing floor in the process of threshing. In, in light of Israel's false worship, Yahweh will send Israel out of the land like smoke is sent out of the window of a home and blown away by the wind. And notice what all of these images have in common. All of those things that are removed, they have no staying power. Right? There's, there's no weight to them. Israel's idolatry has made her insubstantial. She is weak and weightless. See, sin makes you hollow. Sin makes you hollow. Like a tree that's decayed from the inside out. God's intense wrath will burn and blow Israel away in an instant. Think of a tree that's hollow. When a great wind comes, it topples over. Observe, too, that God's wrath cannot be resisted. Right? Hosea says that this is what will happen. It shall happen. Judgment is coming. God's wrath will burn and blow Israel away. But God's intense wrath will also fall like a fierce beast falls upon its prey. Do you see that in verses 7 and 8? Read verses 7 and 8. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast rips, would rip them open. See in these verses, Jose, he, he, he's a prophet who loves word pictures, but these images and analogies of fierce beasts, they're used to explain how God's intense wrath falls on sin. The lion hunts, the leopard stalks, the lion is strong, the leopard is stealthy. So when God hunts sinners for judgment, they're taken by force and taken by surprise. The image of a grieving mother bear robbed of her cubs, it's almost overwhelming, isn't it? She hunts and attacks with nothing to lose. Friends, brothers and sisters, recognize this about God. He's not, he's not dispassionate about your sin. When the time for judgment comes, He will let loose His just wrath. Your sin, our sin, grieves Him, enrages Him, arouses His just anger. This is what the language of tear open and devour and rip open all communicate. And it's not that God has lost control in the moment of judgment. God has not lost control in the moment of judgment. Rather, it's that he's finally letting loose all that he has held back and restrained as you have increased your sin in his sight and stored up. As a lion and leopard wait patiently for the moment to overtake their prey, so God's intense wrath has waited patiently to fall upon the northern kingdom. The moment is coming when it will overtake those worthy of judgment. Do not think that God doesn't care about your sin. If you are dabbling in sin, be, be warned. And receive the welcome of the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls you to escape God's wrath through his life, death, and resurrection. Consider that if, if they, if those who Hosea warned, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, then much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. They did not escape. They, they did go into exile. We will not escape if we don't hear the warning of our God and flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and his welcome. And as we see here, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Perhaps you, uh, you remember the conversation between Susan and Mr. Beaver in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Mr. Beaver told Susan that Aslan, the, the king of Narnia, that he's a great lion. And at this, Susan, she suddenly gets nervous. And she, she tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, as anyone would. And then Susan asked Mr. Beaver if Aslan was safe. To which Mr. Beaver replied, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king. Friends, brothers and sisters, our God is not safe. Sin is not safe with him. It isn't safe with him because he's good. 
It's his goodness and love and justice which lead him to punish evil, wickedness, and, in, and sin with intense judgment. We, we wouldn't call a judge who let a murderer go free. We wouldn't call him good. We wouldn't call him just. We would call him good. We would call him just. If that murder was punished. God is good. And that is why sin is not safe with him. And you are not safe. If you continue to hold on to your sin. And stockpile it away like Israel. We know that God's intense judgment will burn and blow Israel away. Verse 3. We know that God's intense judgment will fall like a fierce beast. Verses 7 and 8. But what form will God's judgment take in this historical moment upon the nation? Hosea tells us in verses 15 and 16. Read Hosea 13 verses 15 and 16. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched, and it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. In these verses, we see that God's wrath will take the form of drought and devastation. I trust, I trust you see the, the drought there. Verse 15 mentions the wind that blows, the fountain that dries, and the spring that is parched. That's the, the drought. And then verse 16, it supplies this, this pitiful picture of what the army of Israel would do to Samaria, the, the capital city of the northern kingdom. That the nation would fall by the sword and few would be spared. Even the little ones and the pregnant women would be sorely harmed. This was how Assyria prosecuted its wars in that day. These curses, these just judgment and devastation that the covenant people would experience Israel. They were, they were told about back in Deuteronomy. They were proclaimed that they would experience the curses and judgment of God through drought and through other nations if they did not keep the covenant with God. Moses told them this in, in Deuteronomy and they agreed to the conditions of the covenant. They agreed to face this judgment if they rebelled against God. So this is not a surprise to Hosea's audience. They're simply being told what they've already been told as a nation back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 22, Yahweh promised the people that they would face drought if they disobeyed. What about this devastation by the hand of Assyria that we see? Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 and 50. The Lord Yahweh will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Assyria would hold nothing back when they came to crush the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And as much as we might like to deny it, we know that it's true. Sin deserves nothing, nothing other, nothing less than total and utter destruction. And because sin is an offense against an infinite and eternal God, that it's only appropriate that judgment be infinite and eternal. Now, in truth, what we're seeing here in these verses, they, they show us, we're seeing temporal judgments upon the nation of Israel and their sins against God. Judgments that happen in time and space, but they are types and shadows of the eternal, the eschatological, the final judgment of God that we deserve for our sin. These are showing us a picture of what our sin truly deserves. And if these temporal judgments against Israel are horrifying, and they are, if these temporal judgments are horrifying, then the eternal judgment of God against sin is infinitely more horrifying. Sin deserves this judgment. Sin deserves eternal death. And we as sinners deserve eternal death. And that is why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only one who could take this punishment. But we need him to receive our eternal punishment. Jesus was the only one who could take this punishment for sinners because he was fully man and fully God. He was the only human person who was infinite and eternal. 
And so he was the only one who could bear the infinite and the eternal wrath of God. And Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 helps to show us, helps to help us to see, to look forward and see how it is that Jesus would receive and defeat death from his, before his people. It shows us that he would in fact give us indestructible life. But only first by taking the punishment for our sin. So let's, let's turn and consider our third and final point. Indestructible life. Follow along as I read verse 14 again of Hosea chapter 13. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Hosea, he has been prophesying that the nation of Israel would have the the judgment of death laid upon them. It's what sins deserve. Paul said the wages of sin is death. So, So the pressing question then is this. Would God redeem them from death? Would God bring his people back from the dead? When, when God cast Israel out of the land and he scattered them among the nations, a kind of death sentence was laid upon them as a nation in the exile. So, so would God redeem them from death? Would he bring them back from exile? But at a deeper level, this question is relevant for us too, isn't it? Would God redeem us from death? Unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we too shall die. So will God bring us back from the dead? Will you get up out of your grave? Now don't don't pass over the obvious. In order to ransom and redeem from death, there must be a death. Jesus had to die if he was to ransom his people from death. And, And take a look at those two key words there in verse 14, the words ransom and redeem. Shall I ransom them? From the power of Sheol. Sheol's the, the realm of the dead. That's an Old Testament expression for the realm of the dead. And then there's, shall I redeem them from death? See, that word, that word ransom, it communicates a, a gracious and generous payment to release someone from bondage. Often this was a, a slave. A slave was ransomed from their, their bondage and released to freedom. So will God ransom his people from the power and bondage of sin which leads to Sheol and death? Will he pay the price? To set his people free. And there's that word redeem. This word in the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures has familial connotations actually. Um, usually a family member was in some kind of desperate situation. And a, a fellow family member who had legal standing. The legal standing could step in and either pay or, or meet the obligations that the situation demanded. So would God meet the obligations of his children? Having been devoid of the righteous requirements of the law that are required to enter into God's presence, would God supply the righteousness required? Not only that, but having incurred the guilt of the law and therefore the punishment of death, would God meet the obligations of justice and provide a substitute to suffer the judgment of His people's sins? Will God redeem His children from death? How should we think about Israel and even ourselves? Well, the answers that the scriptures give to these questions is an emphatic yes. God will redeem his people from death. In time, God would return his people back from exile, bring them and reestablish them in the land. As one commentator put it, the people of God will not lose their existence as a result of the captivity. They will not perish from history. And yet, and yet we know deep down That there is something more in view here that Hosea is thinking about. God will not merely ransom and redeem a people, or redeem the uh, the people of Israel so they can return to their land. He's going to do more. He's going to solve the problem that was first created in the garden. He will not bring his people merely back to the promised land, but he's going to bring them back to his garden home in the new heavens and the new earth. God will do more. The real hope of God's people is not that they would be restored to life in the land, but that they would receive the indestructible life in and through their Messiah's defeat of death through his resurrection from the dead. Through his one and only most beloved son, God 
did ransom sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation. He did set them free from the bondage of sin and death to make them slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. God did redeem his children from the curse of sin and death. He has an interest in it. He has legal standing to do so because he's our heavenly father. And he has accomplished redemption through the death and resurrection of his one and only son. And Jesus himself said that this was his very mission. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that he would die because that was the only way he could ransom his people from death. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it speaks of our redemption. It says this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So look, here, here is what Hosea and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us. In order to be redeemed and ransomed from death, Jesus had to die. He had to endure the intense judgment of God the Father on the cross. There is no resurrection. There is no indestructible life unless Christ had been first put to death. And though Israel was an unwise son, and though he did not present himself at the right time, verse 13, Jesus was the true and faithful son who did When his father called him to go to earth, he went. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Romans chapter 5, verse 6, tells us this, For while we were still weak, or while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So so what is happening in Jesus' death? In Jesus' death, he was receiving what sin deserved. He was receiving the wages of sin, the intense judgment of God. What that means is that God the Father brought forward in time the, the eschatological, the final and full judgment due to the sins of his people. The sins that you deserve to be judged for on the last day were brought forward and poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross if you belong to Him. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need to know that Jesus has satisfied the just requirements of the law against your sins. His sacrifice satisfied God's wrath. And how do we know? How do we know that Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's law? That it was a ransom, that it was a redemption. Because Jesus got up from the dead. That's how we know. Three days after his death, he got up from the dead. And in his resurrection, God was vindicating his son and openly declaring that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was acceptable in God's sight. That God's intense judgment had been assuaged and that there's nothing left for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to endure. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So friends, turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your sins dealt with in full by Jesus. And this is why the Apostle Paul picks up Hosea chapter 13 verse 14, especially the second half. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, and Paul quotes, O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Now, Paul, he's quoting from the, the Septuagint, the, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So his, his translation goes something like this. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, Paul understands the, the second half of Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, as a triumphant taunt over death. You understand that that's what Hosea is doing and what Paul is doing. He understands this verse to be a triumphant taunt over death. Where? Where is your sting? It's gone. Jesus has removed it. Now this taunt, it does not communicate that physical death will no longer occur in our world. Sadly, we know that it still does. Rather, what Paul means is that since Jesus has been raised from the dead... He can never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He now possesses indestructible life. And that's what he gives to all who are united to him in faith. 
And so no judgment of eternal death can now be passed upon those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's not all. Those who are united to the Lord Jesus by faith, though they may die, yet shall they live. Yet shall they live because they possess a living union with Him who possesses and imparts indestructible life. At death, believer, when you die, if you die, your soul will be separated from your body. But the soul, your soul, is never separated from Christ. Death does not separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord, as Paul tells us in Romans 8.38. Instead, death brings us into the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. As Richard Sibbs once said, death is only a grim porter who leads us into a stately palace. Physical death means the end of earthly sorrows and suffering, the end of physical difficulties, the end of sin on any kind at any level. You know, all those things that we struggle with, sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful deeds. Jesus removes the sting of death by receiving us into his presence at death. But he removes the sting of death and promises to give us indestructible life in yet another way. Jesus is the first fruits of a harvest of resurrections that is to come. I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, especially verses 42 to 45. It's on page 962 of the Bibles to come. What Paul says early in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest of resurrections to come. He's saying that Jesus... He's the first fruits of an organic and unified harvest. This is all one harvest. It's not a different harvest. So that Jesus has got up from the dead promises us that there are going to be more resurrections from the dead to come. That the harvest has begun. The new creation power and life has begun. The plagues can come. Brothers and sisters, the viruses can come. And they can claim bodies and they can bury them in the ground. But the truth is, is that the Lord Jesus is sowing seeds into the ground that he's going to raise up in a resurrection harvest. Pay attention to the language of Jesus sowing and raising here. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 to 45, listen to his language of sowing seed. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, the Lord Jesus is going to raise you to indestructible life. You may die here, but he will raise your body up from the grave in indestructible life. One day, very soon, the Lord Jesus will raise all of his people from their graves. He will raise the seed that he has sown. And because Jesus got up from the grave in victory over death, so will we. We have to because the harvest has begun and will continue on. Until the Lord God raises all of his people. On that last day, our God will have no compassion on death. Do you remember what verse 14 ended with in Hosea? It ended with with these words. Uh, Hosea 13, verse 14. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. On the last day, God will have no compassion on death. God will not... Have pity on death and allow it to keep you in the grave. He will not have compassion on death. We will have victory over death because we share in Jesus and his victory over death. No one disdains death more than God. He will have no compassion on it. So he will never turn away from his purpose and promise of giving eternal, indestructible life to his people in Jesus Christ. 
He will never turn away from his sentence of putting death to death in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. What difference does it make that Jesus buried death as he rose to life? What, Christian, what difference does it make that Jesus buried death as he rose to life? See, in Hosea 13, we see that Israel's increasing sin and God's intense judgment is promise of indestructible life in Jesus Christ. That Jesus, he, he receives death and he defeats it for his people. If Jesus buried death as he rose to life, then we should all turn from our sins and embrace him and receive that indestructible and eternal life in him. And that's the whole message of Hosea in a certain sense. Come to him. God has redeemed you from death. So return to him. Return to him in love and in faith. And if Jesus buried death as he rose to life, then we should all live in him. If if no one disdains death more than God, and no one does, then we should show our disdain for death by living. Christian, be happy. Cheer up. You are not in hell and you're not going to hell. Don't, don't be in despair over this life. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given you in this world. Recognize they're good gifts from Him and live with joy and gladness before Him. Giving thanks for all that you have in Christ. That coworker who annoys you, you can endure him and love him and tell him about the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to get up from the dead on the last day. You can tell other people about the Lord Jesus. Be happy and rejoice. This is what God calls us to, to live in view of the life that we're going to receive in him in glory. We live this day in light of the last day. So, so live in, in glad thanks. Live in boldness telling others that Christ has triumphed over sin and death. And that you will too. If Jesus died so that we could live eternally, then we should live with certainty that we will receive what he has ransomed and redeemed for us. Brothers and sisters, let's live in the hope of our resurrection, for Christ has secured it. Death has lost its sting, and we will reign with our King.